Welcome to the podcast of the preaching ministry of LifePoint Church, led by Pastor Lane Harrison. We pray this ministry is a blessing for your life. For more information about LifePoint, please visit lifepointozark.com. For more information and resources from Pastor Lane, please visit mlaneharrison.com. We're in our series entitled Stories, and today we're going to look at Jesus is Lord from Matthew We'll cover the whole 16th chapter of the book. But I want to begin in a little bit of a different way by talking about a movie. True Grit was released in 2010, and it was the remake of an old Western starring John Wayne. Who better to be in an old Western? Now, the new remake of the movie had its own lineup of big names like Jeff Bridges and Nixon, Missouri's own Matt Damon. Uh, And Josh Brolin was also in it. But the movie itself was set in late 19th century in the mountains of West Central Arkansas. And the storyline of the movie follows a teenage girl by the name of Maddie Ross. Now Maddie Ross sets out to hire a U.S. Marshal named Rooster Cogburn. Rooster was a rough dude, but she wanted to hire him to track down that old evil Tom Cheney who had murdered her daddy. So when she locates Rooster, he's sleeping off a drunk from the night before in some bed in the back of a storefront. And she tells Rooster she wants him to get up because she's going to hire him to find that old Tom Cheney because she had heard he had true grit. Rooster wanted nothing to do with this young Maddie. But she would not accept no for an answer. You see, the story of the movie reveals this. That in fact, Maddie was the one who had true grit. She just wouldn't take no for an answer. She had the resolve and the perseverance to see justice done, to see something finished. But the brilliance of the movie and the story and all, really, I would chalk down to two factors. Number one, as you watch a movie set in the late 19th century of Western, these people dressed and riding across the plains are all speaking in a poetic cadence. And the movie just flows by the script. It's it's beautiful. But the second part that I would point out is the masterful way of the use of music to underscore the movie. It moves you through the movie and through every dark aspect of danger and every high celebration. And it's all done not with a litany of songs, but with one major theme. One, leaning on the everlasting arms. It's masterful the way that they use it. And the moments that the music moves you through are so powerful You can feel it in your bones. And as I listened to that soundtrack this week, and I'm thinking about this message, I began to think, imagine this. Imagine one thing, one, that your whole life was lived by. That moved you from one moment, one time, one season of life to the next, but through every season of life, there was one theme that marked who you were and what was taking place. What if 
one theme underscored your whole life. Today I propose to you this is the way of the life of a real Christ follower. One theme. One theme. And here's that theme. Jesus is Lord. And the life lived by this faith confession is surrendered to glorify Him in every way. Now as we move to the text this morning, I don't have time to read every verse. The first portion of the message I'm going to give you a description of the passages, but I believe you'll be able to follow me as I lay them out. So let's move to Matthew chapter 16, and we'll begin in verse 1. In verse 1, we see Jesus again confronted by the religious elitists. They're confronting him again to try and catch him, to test him. Matthew tells us this. The Sadducees were those religious leaders who had no fear of God. And the Pharisees were those religious leaders who had no love for God, nor for people. And by this point, Jesus has been confronted with them so many times, he shows very little patience for their repeated misrepresentation of their motives. They try to make a big picture in front of all the people while Jesus knows they're trying to test him to discredit him. And so when they ask him for a sign, his response to them is this. You know how to read the skies to predict the weather, but you don't know how to read the times to understand God's will. And that from people who claim to be professionals of knowing God's will. And then he ends in verse 4 with the repeating of the only sign that they will be given will be the sign of Jonah, who was swallowed by a great fish, and there in the belly of the great fish for three days he lay until he was delivered from that fish into the hands of God. Then Jesus predicts his crucifixion, burial, and resurrection that will confront the idolatry of dead religion with true wonder-working power, the very sign that they've missed because they have no faith in God. You see, friends, in the opening verses of chapter 16, we learn this. Jesus is no Netflix God where one scrolls the menu to conjure up a miracle on demand. He's not interested in As a matter of fact, he's irritated by the incessant demand to be entertained and entertainment for religious idolatry. Asking for a sign with no desire to glorify Jesus reveals a lack of, not an abundance of faith. And as I mentioned, that one theme that would move us through life So today, I want us to see five moves of faith that lead us through chapter 16 that reveals for us how it is Jesus moves us from spiritual deadness to eternal life under his lordship as a real Christ follower. And here we have our first move today. Move number one shows the reality of faithlessness and people who ultimately reject Jesus Hear me, friends, as we sit in church in a culture that is highly religious, churches on every other corner, understand this first move. 
A lack of faith doesn't mean you have nothing to do with Jesus. It just means you allow Jesus to have little to do with you. And there's always a good reason in your mind for why that's okay. But lest you think Jesus is too harsh, watch what he does when his disciples don't yet understand. Go with me to verse 5. It tells us that they went away when the disciples had reached the other side. They had forgotten to bring any bread. Doesn't sound like too big of a deal unless you think about where we've come from in the previous chapter. You see, Jesus and his disciples move on to seek rest from the crowds. And when they were up in the area of Galilee, often around the Sea of Galilee, they would jump in a boat and sail across the Sea of Galilee, which is really just a big lake, in order to get away from the crowds because the crowds would follow them if they just walked away. And so they would land on this side until the crowds gathered and then go back to this side and up here and hitting all the points. But at this moment, they're trying to get some rest from the crowds. And this was a familiar practice of the Lord Jesus. He would go away either to be with the Father in prayer or he would take his disciples with him. And in those moments, he would teach deeper truths and give greater explanation to the very things that he had just taught to the masses. And this is no different in chapter 16, verses 5 through 12. Matthew notes, first of all, though, that the disciples had forgotten to bring any bread. In that instance, we have to stop and ask, how in the world could they have forgotten to bring bread? They just had the second miracle of feeding of thousands by the blessing of bread, which they had little, and Jesus made it sufficient and abundant with much left over. But Matthew said, they didn't bring any bread. So when Jesus begins to teach them, and he begins this way, beware and watch the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Their immediate first thought was, oh, we didn't bring any bread. Dude, dial in. Pay attention to what Jesus is saying. That's what's going on here. Jesus immediately recognizes this. Why? Because he knows their thoughts. Spoiler alert. You can't even hide your thoughts from Jesus. He knows them. And he responds to them by calling their faith little. Why? Well, because of the self-centered, shallow content that consumed their conversation. And he basically asked them, have you not paid attention to all that you've experienced recently to discern what it is that I'm talking about? Amen, we've been healing the sick. The lame are walking. The hungry are being fed. God is pouring out his power on the earth and you're worried about lunch. That's not all that unfamiliar, but that's where he found them. And he repeats his warning a second time. Watch out and beware the leaven of the Sadducees and the Pharisees. And it tells us this time they understood. Why did they understand? Because they had all of a sudden gotten smarter. Maybe a little bit, but I believe it's because Jesus opened their eyes to begin to understand. Because Jesus is doing something here 
that they didn't fully understand yet. You see, the disciples are consumed by that which gets us all, a me focused on self-needs. Faith had not taken hold of them in such a way to readily engage their mind and their heart in the teaching of God's word. It's like they came to Jesus more with the attitude of what are you going to do to impress us, to engage our imagination instead of going whatever comes out of your mouth is the most important thing for me to hear right now. To be quite honest, the posture of the disciples to Jesus wasn't any different than the Pharisees and the Sadducees. They too, in their own way, were wondering if they would be entertained with some of this master teacher's teaching. I mean, for instance, remember everything that they had recently experienced that we've studied. Verses 21 to 28, it tells us a Canaanite woman was credited by Jesus. That whole statement right there, being itself a miracle, was credited with great faith in the midst of and against the backdrop of the lack of faith of the Jews. Why? Because she simply believed that a crumb of God's power in Jesus Christ in her life was greater than all the power that the world could possibly give to her. Jesus celebrated her for that. Verses 29 through 39, it tells us that a crowd of unbelievers glorified God because they had seen all of the miracles that Jesus had done. And then he fed thousands again with only a few loaves and fish. I'll be honest with you, I don't believe that Jesus fed that second group, maybe not even the first group, simply because they were hungry. That moved them because the scripture tells us he had compassion. But I think he's trying to show his disciples something here because once he says about the crowd, I know they're hungry and I have compassion on them, we go into this textual interplay between he and his disciples. He says, let's feed them. They go, we don't have the resources to feed them. And Jesus said, we've done this before, fellas. This ain't our first rodeo. And yet they'd forgotten. I know what some of you are thinking. Man, if I'd been there, I would never forget what happened. Yes, you would. There's 12 witnesses who were there and they all forgot. Yes, they were present for the miracles and they heard Jesus teach. But here's why they thought he was talking about bread instead of what he was really talking about with the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. They weren't intentionally engaged. They were hearing, but not listening to what was really going on. And that's why Jesus calls their faith little. And he asked why they're discussing what it is that they want to talk about bread. You see, Jesus knows what's going on, but he's trying to point it out so that they can learn and understand. And I wonder today how true this is of so many. We mostly stay distracted by our devices today. If it's not true of you, you are the 0.01% of all reality. But it's true of most of us. We're present, but we're not engaged. We hear, but we don't listen. And so we miss the point. We have enough faith that gets us to church but not enough for our life to be significantly affected or even radically changed by what Jesus is saying and doing through it. We take into consideration 
the good counsel of God. But we're not moved to obedience. You may say, well, I know some things aren't good for my kids, but man, I don't like telling them no. We make those little concessions. A husband or a wife might say, I feel distant from my spouse, but man, we're just so busy, we don't have time to do anything about it. And you don't have time not to do something about that. You see, here's here's where we've come today. We, We know so much of what God has said. But we're not overly interested in obeying. That's the little faith Jesus was identifying with the disciples. That's the little faith. He said, you know, you're present, but you're not engaged. You're hearing, but you're not listening. What Jesus wants to do is open the eyes of your heart and mind today the way he did the disciples. Because in this second move, it shows us how Jesus identified the problem for the disciples. And by disciples, I don't mean just the 12 in the text but all of those who are disciples of Jesus Christ here today, here's that problem. When we live distracted by the things of the world, even the good things, usually, mostly the good things, it divides our priorities to deter our faith that brings real life change. And so I, in this second move, pause to ask you, friend, what's distracting you? What's deterring you from a real, vibrant faith in Jesus today that moves you from not just knowing, but believing to obey? We come to verse 13. We come to one of the most critical passages in all of the New Testament, yea, even the Bible. And I'm going to read these for us. Look at verse 13 of Matthew 16. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. Verse 13, now Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi with his disciples. This is the geographical context for this portion of the story that Matthew felt important enough to point out to us. And he says to his disciples, who are people saying that the Son of Man is? His favorite self-designation, the title drawn from the prophet Daniel. And they tell him, uh, the disciples state, well, some say you're John the Baptist. Whoa, that's a pretty big one right there. (laughs) I mean, John the Baptist. You're walking and talking there, right? 
Well, some say Elijah. Woo, now you're getting really big. Well, some say Jeremiah, another one says. And they start calling out prophets. And these are what the people are telling us. Every answer cited, though, did you notice this? Is just another impressive religious figure to the crowd. Why? Because that's the way they're thinking. We're not sure if they were trying to be nice, if they were trying to impress Jesus. And we have no reason to doubt that their answers were not honest. But what seems most likely is that most people thought of Jesus as just another great religious figure. He's a great man. You know, a lot of religions today teach that about Jesus. He's a great man, did a lot of great things. He's a great prophet of God, demonstrated some things a lot of other people can't demonstrate. But they never get all the way to where he is. He's God. He's Lord of all. I also pause to ask, why is it important that Matthew would mention Caesarea Philippi to us? He could have just said, like he says at other times, he went to the other side. He went to the other side, letting us know he went away. Well, you see, Caesarea Philippi, the city and the region was originally known as Peneus. And it was the center of worship for the Greek god known as Pan. And when the Romans conquered it, Philip the Tetrarch was in charge of this region. And he renamed Peneus Caesarea Philippi so that he could honor Caesar Augustus and get a little bit of his own honor in there as well. Philippi for Philip. But Caesarea Philippi is famous as the place for the worship of the Greek god Pan. As a matter of fact, the picture that you are looking at here is the location of the altar of sacrifice for the worship of that. And do you know what they title this place? It's known as the gates of hell. The gates of hell. What happens at the gates of hell? At the gates of hell, it's a place of extensive idol sacrifice where goats are repeatedly sacrificed throughout the day, seven days a week, every week of the year. This is a place where gods are believed to live because out of that cave comes a river, which if I had zoomed back in the picture, you would see it just below. The river comes out of the ground to above ground, out of the mountain. And because of that, the people of the first century said, this must be where a god lives. And that's how it became the central worship and sacrificial place for Pan. But there's something else about this. The second picture will show. It was one of the largest idol worship altars of the first century where these endless goat sacrifices, literally it was said, made the mountain flow red with blood. You can see all of the carvings into the mountain where they would take the parts of the animal and the idols of their worship and place them in those. And there were so many sacrifices being made that when the blood would flow, out of those parts, it would literally turn the whole mountain red. This is the backdrop where Jesus looks at his disciples and says, who do people say that I am? The world is worshiping something. They're killing themselves. They're killing everything. 
everything they can get their hands on to try to get to God. And Jesus says, who do these people say I am? You see, against the backdrop of worldly idolatry, he asked his disciples, not just who do they think I am, who do you think I am? Do you believe this? Do you dabble a little bit on the side just in case they might be right? But not letting anybody know it? And Peter answers. And listen, Peter always talking. But even a blind squirrel finds a nut every now and then. And that's what Peter finds. He says, you are the Christ the son of the living God. And Jesus says, Peter, you are right. And you're right not because the world revealed you to, this to you or you knew this, but you are right because the Father has revealed this to you. And he tells that on the confession Peter made, he would build his church. Now let me tell you, this passage of scripture is so packed and so critical, we could spend weeks just studying it. But I need you to understand, Jesus is not saying Peter is the foundation of the church, of which a great amount of church history has been incorrect in that. But the confession of Peter is the foundation of the church. And Jesus' response to the confession is a promise of his provision in answering the prayer of supplication that he taught his disciples to pray back in chapter 6. When you pray, pray this way. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. And what's the next part? Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. You see, what Jesus is teaching the disciples is he's tying his teaching together and he's taught them pray this way and look to me I'm going to be the one to bring it about it is the prayer of supplication it is the prayer as we've discussed that brings heaven down to earth and that's exactly what Jesus promises that's exactly what he says he says listen when you pray this way what has been bound in heaven is what will be bound on the earth and what has been unleashed in heaven will be unleashed on earth and when the kingdom of God advances the gates of hell not one act or ideology of idolatry in this world will prevail over the gospel of Jesus Christ that he is Lord and in the same way, there won't be a physical malady or a physical need that he will be confronted with that he doesn't have the power to fully correct and redeem. So it is that there will not be a religious ideology, a self-righteous ideology that will stand against the truth that Jesus is God and he is Lord of all creation. The question is, do you believe? Jesus promises victory for his church. For those who live by the confession, Jesus is Lord. Remember all we've covered so far in this story. We first encountered the underbelief of the religious leaders. Of the religious leaders. Don't let that pass you by. Who didn't believe Jesus was the Messiah. And they were the professionals who were supposed to be leading the church looking for him. 
Then Jesus called his own disciples out for little faith because they were distracted and divided in their priorities from his discipleship. They were with him everywhere he went. They just weren't present. You know what I'm talking about? Yes, you do. And now we're confronted by the idolatry of the world in a morbid, mutilating fashion. This is not so far from us today, friends. As the world continues in its ever insatiable hunger to find their own answer so they can live in denial of God. Matthew 16 shows the full spectrum of unbelief and Jesus gets right to the heart of the matter. He not only instructs his disciples but he equips them to understand that the only true solution to all they've encountered is this confession. This brings us to move three which reveals the answer to all idolatry and sinful distraction, that it's only found in one solution. In the presence of every unbelief and worldly idolatry, faith produces the confession, Jesus is Lord. And listen to me, friends. Here's how you can assess your own heart. Where true faith exists, no matter what you are confronted by in your life, the confession, Jesus is Lord, will be the defining characteristic that leads you forward. Period. Jesus dials in his teaching from this point to reveal truth, the truth of this confession that Peter has made. And this is one of those situations that kind of follows my golf game. Like, I play golf. I haven't played golf in years. Who am I lying to? (laughs) But when I did play golf, I played golf for one shot. And once I hit that shot, I was done. I picked the clubs up and walked off the course because I was not going to ruin that shot. If it was the first shot of the day, which it never was, I would have stopped. Usually it came on about hole four because after hole five, I got such a short attention span, I couldn't pay attention to anything. Kind of like Peter. And that's what Peter should have done. He should have kept his mouth shut after he got that one answer right. But he chose not to. Look what he did in verse 21. It tells us from that time Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things. What Matthew is doing in the writing of his gospel with that phrase, from that time, he's telling us Jesus has blinders on. He's not focused on anything other but the cross in Jerusalem. He's going there. He's going to be undeterred about arriving there. And he's going to do what the Father has sent him to do. He'll be killed and raised on the third day. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Peter, Peter, Peter. Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen. Jesus turned to Peter and said, get behind me, Satan. You're a hindrance to me. You're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. The very lesson he just taught to him, right? So he begins to teach his disciples about his death and his resurrection. That's the fundamentals of the gospel. Now take note of this, friends. The deepest and most insightful teaching that Jesus did with his disciples were the basic fundamentals of the gospel. Thought about that? So many times in the church, we want to get the gospel and move on to something else. Jesus says, there isn't anything else. You apply this to everything because only by the gospel will you confess my lordship. And he anchored everything to this very revelation. Paul repeats this practice, 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Uh, 15 verses 3 and 4 he said I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received 
that Christ died for our sins in accordance to the Scripture, that he was buried and was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scripture. You see, friends, faith that brings new life from God is not merely believing what Jesus did do. There's a lot of people that believe Jesus died and many that even believe he rose again, and that's as much as it gives. But faith that saves is not merely believing what he did. Faith that brings new life from God is not merely believing in what he can do. Well, Jesus can do anything he wants to do. And you list a litany of things that you think are unimaginable, but that you're fully convinced he could do. That's not true faith that brings new life. Faith that brings new life in God is not just about merely believing what even you want him to do, he will do. Rather, faith that brings new life from God is placing your trust in Jesus' work on the cross to forgive your sins and walking in obedience to him as Lord because of that. You no longer are your own. You are bought with a price. You honor the Lord Jesus. This leads us to move number four. Where the gospel is the center of true faith that brings salvation and produces faithful confession. Jesus was crucified, buried, and resurrected to atone for sin that by faith in him we are made right and have peace with God. Friends, do you have peace with God? Do you know that he has made you right? You say, oh, I'm not worthy. None of us are. But when you put your faith in Jesus Christ, he makes you right with God. That is the absolute, inconceivable, unfathomable, why in the world would he question of the ages. And yet for all who call on his name, that's what he does. Will you call on his name today? Today? Because the life under Jesus' lordship is lived distinctively to give him glory. Look at verse 24 to 28. Jesus goes on to tell his disciples, if anyone would come after me, just like you 12 are following me everywhere, if anybody would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? You see, Jesus explains the kind of life that faith in him motivates and empowers Paul's words actually help us give a little better, uh, not better, but a little more understanding. When Paul says this in Philippians chapter 3, verses 7 through 11, whatever gain I had in this life, no matter how it came, I count it as loss. As a matter of fact, he said, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. I just wonder today if there aren't some people in the room that need to do some life accounting. Because when the spreadsheet gets pulled out, there have been some things that gotten put in the wrong column. And it's time to count them differently than we've counted them before because that's what the Lordship of Jesus Christ and the grace of God through the gospel leads us to do. Move number five reveals what the new life of a real Christ follower means. Forsaking all. I follow Jesus as Lord. You know, I mentioned our missionaries on the field in Spain 
Adam and Lauren who taught our children. This is exactly the confession that they had to make in their life before they could ever be led and be obedient to the mission that God would lead them on. And wherever the Lord Jesus leads you, it will always begin with this confession. Jesus is Lord. Is this true of you? Do you know that new life by faith? Friends, God waits today to give it to you. By His Holy Spirit, all who will call on His name, confess the name of Jesus. Today, He will give you that new life. He will make you right with God. One thing, one thing for all of life, all of the highs, man, it swells and it's leaning, leaning, leaning on the everlasting arms of God. And in the darkness, And the unknown and the dangerous, leaning, leaning, leaning on the everlasting arms of God. One thing spans the whole spectrum. You see, there's no halfway to Jesus' lordship. He's either Lord of all or he's not Lord at all. But when he becomes Lord, he commands every faculty of your life, not just to be near and to hear but to be present and fully attuned to all that he is doing. Have you settled this in your heart today? That Jesus is Lord so that you can say, my life lived for the Lordship of Jesus Christ is a life fully surrendered to him in every way.